Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Well, tonight we're out sleeping around again. That's right, Chris, Brett, and I, we're being dirty sluts, and we brought Dan Verson back. But we're not going to talk about solo gaming, none of that dirty stuff going on. He's here to talk about what all of you budding game designers want to know about, the business of game design. Dan, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. I'm kind of surprised. I don't normally get invited back to things. <laughs> well, you didn't totally mess it up last time. So we're like, hey, this guy actually had some good information. We might want to bring him back. So we've got Chris, we've got Brett both on. Uh, and, uh, and we just want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of the 700-pound gorilla in the room, things people don't think about, the the business of game design, you know, finding play testers and, and doing all those kind of things that uh, are, are the hard work behind putting out a really cool product. That's true. Um, the fun part of game design, at least for me, is laying in bed or laying on a couch staring at the ceiling trying to figure out how the game mechanics are going to work. And I can do that endlessly. And then you have the work part of it, which is how are you then going to put all of this together in a reasonable deadline, time frame, budget? What are the component limitations? As well as what people do you have to reach out to either in the company or outside of the company, like my art skills topped out in about the third grade. And so Good. you and I, are yeah. there. <laughs> Chris laughs at me. He's like, you couldn't do that in five minutes. I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry. I don't have an art degree. They're yeah. And it's one of those things where you slowly have to reach out and build up like this group of people, a team. And so we work with a lot of art freelancers, design freelancers, you know, across Europe, across Asia, across the U.S. And you then, one of the things that you find is that designing a game then just becomes like one fraction of the pie that you have to put together because that's what's needed to take it beyond a game that you play in your den to having an actual published game is, you know, I couldn't conceive of doing a game design with less than like half a dozen different people, you know, specializing. And so the game design itself is step one. And then after that, it kind of gets to the more businessy, complicated parts of things. Well, you know, it seems from just the small interaction that we've had, uh, at least on the, the DVG side, uh, you obviously do a great job of planning out at least the game phase. You sit there and you say, okay, we have a spreadsheet. We're going to understand the card mechanics. How do you create a, a structure in your mind for the rest of the organization? Because, you know, I can only apply it to my frame of reference, either in the Marine Corps. Oh, wait, I had embark officers like Chris to do that for me uh, to get me from point A to point B. How do you, you just drank coffee. I did. I drank coffee. You didn't even fly the plane, dude. <laughs> I, I sat around in pajamas, drank coffee, and, you know, pretty much did nothing. Uh, and magically, my, my suitcase showed up at the next deployment site. It's weird how that happened. Don't ever lose my stuff again, Chris. Uh, but... Uh, but how do you how do you plan out the logistics? And I know it's always a complex thing. So it changes for every game. But but if somebody was was sitting there going, oh, game design seems easy. Producing a game, you just go get some guy in China to produce all the all the cards and all the maps for you. I mean, what are some of the considerations for the logistics that you guys think you're rolling into Kickstarter or into just a regular regular game production? Well, one of the things I start off with is what are the components going to be like every printer has its own specifications of what they consider to be a sheet of cards and that kind of thing. So our games are based on 56 card sheets. So right away, that kind of is a design constraint of having a game with 60 cards is money inefficient. So at that point, do we cut it down to 56 cards or do we boost it up to 112 cards? There's then the aspects of I do the initial design work I then work with my wife, Holly, who does the development work. And so I have to figure out when do I phase her into the project so that she doesn't phase in too early when I have basically just a pile of rough notes that are still in flux minute by minute. But on the other hand, if I phase her in too late, then I've wasted time designing a game that really doesn't work. And if she'd have been around two weeks earlier, she'd have put me down a good path. And then I bring Kevin and Sarah into it who look over the game, 
from a marketing and also player group point of view of is this the kind of game that's going to appeal to our established market? Is it too complex? Is it not complex enough? If it's if I'm adding a game to the Warfighter series or the Leader series, let's say you know an add-on to Hornet Leader, an add-on to Hornet Leader was something like Corsair Leader, and so what I shoot for is like an eighty percent similarity. Corsair is supposed to be eighty percent similar mechanically to Hornet, twenty percent different to capture the feel of World War II. So that was kind of a iteration of Hornet. And now Chuck Siegert is working on Zero Leader, who's based off of Corsair Leader. And again, it's that 80% kind of thing, where 80% of Zero is going to be like Corsair, with 20% thrown in for the uniqueness of fighting the Japanese side. And it's one of those things of slowly phasing people into the project. And there's not really a science to it, I guess. It's more of just like a feel you get with experience because you don't want to bring people in too early or too late, because both of which cause problems. And a key to it, I think, is mostly having a lot of communications with your team members. So that way they know what you're working on. And so that way they can provide feedback along the way. And so for me, it's really a big group effort. And luckily we all have like our primary roles in the company, but we're all somewhat familiar with everyone else's role. And that helps the communications a lot. So that way in the DVG meetings, everyone can have something to say about everything. There isn't people who, you know, because, you know, I'm talking like we're a big company, you know, there's four of us. So, <laughs> you know, hundreds of employees you have there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, literally there's as many dogs in the room as people when we do a DVG meeting, you know, because we have That's four dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so people are petting the dogs and designing games and it's a lot of fun. Well, so when you when you have to kind of step back and you think about the process you're you're stepping through and when you start phasing people in, is there a balance of the pure game design as it as it sits in your head and the practical mechanics? Because I know you and I talked the last time, uh, especially about Hornet Leader the first time around and, and Hornet Leader 1.0. I, I still think of it as a fun game. It, it is mechanics heavy and there's a lot of dice rolling that that, you know, as I look at it, I go. How many dice am I going to roll to shoot an aim seven missile? Um, right. But but is there when when does that balance really start happening? Because it obviously has to happen before it hits playtest. So obviously Holly has to turn around and go, "Hey Dan, I know you really like these, you know, seven different tables you're looking at to simulate this. Yeah, how how do you balance that? Where's where do you kind of sometimes have to draw the line and say, no, I want to try something different because it is that twenty percent different for feel. I'm I'm simulating right. a more complex airplane or hey, I threw out half the die rolls because we're simulating a Corsair. They're flying by feel, not by mechanics. What's interesting is to me, a lot of the best design leaps tend to take place late at night when we've, it's day three of an extended playtest session. We're now six hours deep playtesting on that particular day. And you can like feel the blood in your eyeballs and you get to a point where you're playing the game and you look at the game and it's like, this is frustrating. This is too many rules, too complex. I can't keep it all in my head. And that sense of frustration then leads to a complete re-examination of the big design of thinking, this is like bushed out too much. We need to hack this back. We need to streamline. This isn't going the way that the game is supposed, you know, the way it was envisioned. And to me, it's kind of weird, but a lot of the design leaps happen out of frustration. <laughs> yeah, well, it, um, <clears throat> that makes perfect sense. I mean, Brett, you probably saw that a little bit at Coastal Con as we were playing through uh, some of the very early Vietnam rules and and the the you, you having to stop me and go, wait, say that again. When can I use this afterburner ability? You know, that doesn't right. make sense. You know, <laughs> can I use it the whole turn? Do I use it part of the turn? Well, while you were speaking, Dan, I was thinking it it uh, reminded me of something I recall Andy Chambers saying. He used the term compression a lot, and he was talking about some of the game mechanics. But it, the way it resonates for me as I hear you speak to it, it sounds like sometimes you get to a point where you just have to make it a little bit more intuitive, a little bit more simple, and kind of cut everything down. Is that is, Am I tracking? Yeah, that's exactly right. In that vein, one of the things when I've talked with people, they've said, you know, when do you know that a game design is done? Because, you know, really you can tinker with it forever. And so what I've tried to explain 
is that you design a game and you put some time into it and you then have a good game design. You then put more time, more effort, more playtest in, and then you have a great design. And what we try to do is take it one step farther so that we get what's then I refer to as being an obvious design is that then after all of those months of work and all of that frustration and a million prototypes, when I finally show it to somebody at a game convention, they look at all of that work and say, oh yeah, that's obvious. Of course, that's how the game should work. And once we get a design to the obvious stage, that's when I know it's done. Nice. Well, we've talked about it a couple of times offline. And one of my big frustrations with, with any company is poorly play-tested rules and poorly play-tested mechanics. And and obviously, Brett and, and Chris and I are all nodding because we're victims of 40K. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the worst play-tested games ever. I'm, I'm really not Book sure seven, 30K. Oh, I, I don't think they play-tested it. I don't they think just, that, yeah. I, I and it's a leather-bound book. They just threw it out there. Apparently they didn't go. have time. It, took, it was it was so quick to print that leather bound tome of information. They didn't have time to test the rules, Chris. You yeah. So so play testing is one of those things that I guess is kind of if if I have a pet rock with games, it's one of those things that I I shouldn't pick up the rules and go. This is the first time I've looked and I already see holes in it. I can already see an exploit. I can see things that that just don't don't mesh well um and of course you know chris has probably been the victim of many of those exploits in 30k games uh, oh yeah but <laughs> like, over and over again yeah, what you, how does that multiplier add exactly. to that multiplier add to that multiplier <laughs> oh and read. doug's over here going it's it's right here dude dude it's, it's, it's it, like, it, like page 87 in the exactly. black <laughs> right here I, I roll 60 dice every time i shoot um but but how do you really, you know, step through the playtesting piece of it? Because I, I know from our limited experience, just working on on the Warlord uh, Vietnam piece and a little bit with Midway and some of the other ones, that there's there's always such a rush to slap thing is complete, and and that people say, okay, we've tried it. Did anyone hate it? No one hated it. All right, we think we're done. How do you, as a as a team lead, really carry through and go, guys? I know everyone's bleeding from the eyes, but we need to go through <laughs> it again from the bottom and and really build that level of, uh, of due diligence in. It's true. And one of the things that normally happens in a project is we'll work on it daily for a month or two, and we get it to pretty much what we feel to be the done stage. And we normally have maybe three to four projects going on at a time. So then what we do is we put that project aside for about a week, work on other projects, answer emails, you know, all of the business stuff. Then we come back to that project, and what we find is that coming back to it with a week old of fresh eyes reveals a lot of the stuff, because when you're hip deep in it day by day, you know inherently all of those complex rules and modifiers and procedures, and you just don't really think about them anymore. And you may not realize this is overly complex, this has a whole wait, how does rule A interlock with rule B? and you just don't even see it. But you go away for a week, you come back, and those questions kind of pop into your head at that point because you're not running on autopilot anymore. And so for me, taking breaks, also having good communications with the other people on the team, because everyone on the team has got to feel comfortable enough saying, that doesn't make sense, that's too complex, I don't get it. And, you know, sometimes they have very valid, you know, reasons, at which point you do have to kind of pull the cord, stop the design, take a couple steps back and figure out, you know, how are we going to fix this thing? So it is kind of an ongoing process of always trying. The hardest part is when you've looked at something daily, you don't really see it anymore. It's kind of like proofreading your own rule book or your own story or your own speech or whatever. And then... You know, one of the ways that we found is it's like a writing trick is that is to read the rule book out loud because there's something about reading it out loud that makes your brain actually look at the rules. And that's when you start to realize, hey, there's a hole here or that's a really bad sentence or I just wrote, you know, a 57 word sentence. That's not so good. And so I would really like to find more efficient ways of design, but for me, it's unfortunately kind of that million monkeys at the million keyboards kind of way. Right. And we just... <laughs> Eventually, they will churn out all of the great works. <laughs> exactly. And it takes a while. 
And I've worked with other designers and every designer has their own approach. So there isn't like a right solution. Right. It all comes down to, you know, what works for each individual person. And I tend to go through a lot of design evolutions. You know, in the early part of a game, a design won't survive more than like half of a turn. You know, when we can actually get through an entire turn cycle, that's a huge achievement. And yes, because Hornet Leader had what, 47 steps to a turn? Sorry. Right. <laughs> no, no, it's true. It had a bunch of steps. Uh, no, but, you know, and I think that that's one of the interesting things that's different about your style of games, I'll say, than Andy Chambers' style is that there's two very mo different models here, one which is a a very few iterations because they're solo play your games obviously you say okay we're going to do four steps we're going to do five steps uh you know in some of the, the leader style games um and it's a it's a lot of different things that can go on in that one turn because you're compressing time into that one turn because you say i only want to do this four times i don't want to do this right. over and over and over again because we will be here all day uh even in the solo game whereas some game designers it seems turn that on on its head a little bit and they oversimplify the action and make it a much narrower time frame. But my God, you can go on. And as Brett and I think we did for, for one of the games right at the end of Coastal Con that I could not make end until I finally stopped being a bad demo game guy and beat up on the new guy. Uh, but but you're like, I feel like I have done this 10 times for you know 10 turns and it's just not fun to go through the same steps anymore. You know, So I think I think it's interesting to see the, the balance in, in different styles of gaming with very very narrow focus turns, then broader, lots more actions going on, lots more interaction in a, in a very short game. Cause I, one of the funniest things that always goes, it, it always caused me to change my thinking about the game is for Hornet leader. And I, if I was a better guy, I would have unboxed Phantom leader and looked at, <laughs> uh, I, I only got the other half of my gaming table today and got it assembled. So I now feel like I can, I can unbox it and, and give it its space that it's due uh, without getting divorced by my wife for putting it on the dining <laughs> room table. Uh, but but, you know, I go through Hornet later. I'm like, there's four steps. I have four, you know, four turns to this game. And that's all there is. You know, there right. is there is no more, no less. I have to do everything inside that constraint. And that's a it's a very different model, I think, for a lot of people who uh, tend to think of open ended kind of games and, and things where there's no no buzzer limit that says you're going to be done by now or else you don't complete the game. Right. I like trying to have multiple. I like to have few steps because if you take everything that a player can do and you throw it into a few steps, it gives the player a lot of flexibility in terms of what do they do during each of those steps. What I found is as you break steps into more and more pieces, it locks the player down of this is your chance to move. This is your chance to acquire a target, whatever. And they can't do that interactively because once a step is gone, it's gone. And so what I like to do is combine all of the actions that a player can do into one step. And so that way it gives the player the flexibility of how, you know, in all cases, a pilot might be able to do one thing, but how they choose their pilots to act, how they choose which actions each pilot's going to do, then becomes very interactive and storytelling because then the player gets to decide how they're going to do things and to me, the more choices you can give the player, the better, because that's really how the player interacts with the game. And the more times you tell the player, you have to do this, you can't do that, it takes away the storytelling. And to me, ultimately, what I want is for a player to finish playing a game and have this story in their head of the, you know, the fighter plane zoomed in, the SAMs were firing and they were firing off their arms and they were zooming on in. And I want the mission to play in their head like a movie. Right. And to me, the more procedures and modifiers you throw in, it kind of engages the math part of people's brains, not the storytelling part. So I like to keep the mechanics as light as possible, the decision-making as high as possible, because I found, at least for me, that lends itself to more of a visual movie kind of memory, as opposed to I just filled out my taxes kind of memory. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that, at least in my opinion, and, and Brett and I could have maybe slightly different opinions on uh, how we like losing a game because <laughs> we both uh, have, have had those blood red skies games where, where we lose literally on turn one and we look and go, okay, rack and stack. I'm going to set up the same scenario again. Yeah. I, I find a similar thing in the leader series games and you're probably going to laugh at this because I'm, I'm probably breaking the system by doing it, but there are times I go, okay, I'm not going to finish this mission. I, I feel like I have lost it on step one of four 
There is yeah. no point. I can't physically damage the target enough. I'm just going to act like this never. This mission never happened. Go draw another card. Build my my strike package because I have proven that I made really poor choices with my pilots, with my aircraft load, and to me, it's only going to take me another thirty minutes to play the other three steps. But I'm like, why? I've proven I will screw it up, and 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 it's kind of funny because every once in a while it's fun to go through and you go, oh, awesome! I took a fifteen point hit in victory points, <laughs> you know, because because I did this so poorly that I'm now in a hole I can't get out of on a campaign. But um, but I, I do find sometimes, at least with, with specifically with Hornet Leader, that there was a, a point where I'd go, I'm just going to call this whole mission a scrub, and, right. and chalk it up to learning, and just right. say say forget it i apparently i didn't understand the mechanics of shooting the bandits or pairing my hornets together versus bandits things like that and go let's try this all again and see if i can i can properly think through the decisions of the game because i, I think that's um one of the one of the interesting parts of game design is is making it intuitive enough that people understand it but not so that they just beat the game the first time they play it you know right you know, and where's the challenge especially in a solo game so. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point of I can usually tell when a game design is getting towards the completion phase when I notice myself cheating during play tests because it's like at that point I'm emotionally invested in the game, yes. the pilots, the <laughs> missions, and it's like, you know, some SAM site's going to like damage me on a nine, destroy me on a 10, but it's okay. I can suppress on like a four or higher and like all of those die rolls fail. My main bomb guy goes down in flames <laughs> and it's like, nope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the it's, Sam missed, we're doing yeah. fine. We're just and that's what when would happen if I had rolled perfectly fine, yep. Right. So you turn the console off and go back to the last save point, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and I was wondering, is there a little bit of that that has been ingrained in gamers from the video game constant kind of save game mentality, because I know I didn't used to have this mentality for playing board games, but now I'm really like, I don't care. I'm the one keeping the record of the campaign here. I don't have to log that mission as ever having happened. Let's just draw another target card. Let's right. pick, our, our, pick up our, our weapons. Because once again, it's a solo game. I'm not cheating anyone but myself at that point. You know, I'm like, all right, I'm going to try another mission because I failed that one terribly on, on step one of four. So... Yeah. And one of the things, you know, when people online have asked, so, you know, how do I play or whatever? One of the things I tell them is set up a mission, play it, and then just play that one mission a couple times and just take like a plane or two and just work your way through the mechanics and the turn cycle a couple times until you're familiar with it. Because one of the things I found that sometimes people do is they'll take a bunch of planes, a bunch of bombs, big old campaign, and then they don't do well on their first mission but they've invested a huge amount of time and effort. And at that point, they're kind of soured on the game and they never pick it up again. And yeah. so what I encourage people to do is start small. And especially in solitaire games, you can play it whenever you want to. So you do a couple little missions, you get really comfortable with the rules. And then you say, okay, now I'm starting for real. And I think it's a much better way of learning things, far less frustrating, because ultimately we're playing games for fun. Right. And <laughs> if it's not fun, people aren't going to pick up the game again. So I like to do whatever I can to make it as fun of an experience for people as possible. So how do you really pull that feedback from your playtesters? Because once again, playtesters, like we've talked about, tend to get in the rut. They're so used to finding things, breaking things, fixing things, going through that routine. How do you, at the end of a uh, a long series of playtest wranglings for lack of a better term how do you look people in the eye and go well was it still fun <laughs> because obviously as a playtester there's a point where like it's not going to be fun because i'm playing it over and over and over right how do you how do you find people can evaluate that what i do with that is either a lot of phone calling or emailing and basically trying to listen to the tone of their voice and that is when somebody's been playing a game and it's not working, you can hear kind of that frustration in their voice of, you know, this doesn't really pay. I have other things to do. The wife is complaining, you know, <laughs> why am I doing this? Great usually gives me that when he's like, really, are you going to make me drive up for another convention just so you can beat me up and call it playtesting? <laughs> exactly. And the alternative is when they're having fun, they can't wait to tell you their stories of we're supposed to go after the nuclear reactor, but I was low on SO points. Half my guys were shaken. What was I going to do? And then they really get into that storytelling and they want to tell you every missile shot, every SAM shot, each one of their bomb drops. And so I think a lot of it is the personal skills 
of listening to the tone of voice. And then also, I get a lot of people who want to be playtesters. And so we'll give them a try and we'll send out some materials or whatever. And a lot of people just don't have the right mentality or whatever you'd want to call right. it, where they don't give valuable feedback. And when you're playtesting, you tend to look for very specific things of you don't want feedback of this sucks, I don't like it. What you want is why don't you like it? What isn't working? And it's very difficult for some people to kind of put themselves in that mindset. And one of the things I found is that military people, ex-military people, and people who do a lot of Defense Department work are very good playtesters because I guess that they're, they just have like analytical type minds who are used to observing, experiencing, and then documenting exactly what happened. And that's perfect for playtesting. A lot of our, play, our best playtesters come from those fields. See, Brett, you're good. So my Rangers had 65 pallets of beans. However, when we landed, there were only 40 pallets of beans on the C5. So <laughs> we need analytical guys just like you. Oh, Chris, no, you shouldn't be no, laughing. There's a, there's a Brett, joke coming for you, too. <laughs> you know, uh, Brett, the, we can talk about Doug here. This is an obvious point where the officers have told us that no matter how bad it was, you're going to do eight after-action reports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what you guys are talking about. My job is just to move to the sound of gunfire and shoot anybody that wasn't dressed like me. I don't know what you know, means. Know this logistics stuff you're talking about. That's, <laughs> I didn't do that. Brett was an operator, right? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, at least, well, so I have to buy him a copy of Warfighter now, so he can so he can be an operator. Well, he became a log when he had to feed himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, is that, there is that. That's true. <laughs> Wait, people don't take care of me in this job. No, but I, I think I think Dan hits on something really important there, and that's uh, something I've seen in, in my small amount of playtest work years ago with Squadron Commander thirty six hundred, and then um, now with some of the uh, the Blood Red Skies stuff. Is that it's really hard to get detailed feedback out of people. Now, I strangely don't have that problem with Brett. Brett is one of those guys that you want to be uh, your proofreader, your audio uh, inspector uh, for the podcast, and your uh, your playtester because he gives detailed feedback. But that's something you don't normally get, and and it you know frustrates me greatly sometimes on the on the playtest team asking people exactly what was broken, what what card mechanic did we mess up. Um, so Dan, how? How do you kind of nurture that amongst your team? Because obviously you can't just say, all of you who didn't give me good feedback in the <laughs> game, you're gone. You know, how do you how do you really kind of lead people along and say, okay, um, that was helpful saying that the game was fun. I also really want to know the things that didn't work. Tell me about things that didn't work and what drove you nuts. And how do you build that in a team? Well, it is one of those things where we do try to nurture people along. But there also kind of becomes a point where some people just aren't good at it, at which point those people get contacted, you know, less and less frequently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, but for the most part, I think that people try. And I think a lot of this comes down to communications of people don't understand exactly what it is you're looking for. And as long as you're comfortable enough with them to be able to say, you know, what you're telling me is great. What I'm specifically interested in, though, is when a AAA site is firing at a Hornet and the Hornet's attempting to suppress or evade the attack, how is that one microsystem of the game working? Are the AAA sites, do they have the opportunity to fire enough? Or are they always finding themselves out of range? Or are they always getting pre-shot by the Hornets? When they do fire, is it a good tension-filled moment of does it have the right feel of deadliness? Do you feel afraid or do you feel like, ah, he's only going to hit me on a one, I don't care. <laughs> and then when he is going to hit you, do you have a decent chance to suppress or evade while paying what you think to be an applicable cost? Like it shouldn't just be free to shrug it off. On the other hand, it shouldn't be too costly or else why give people the options? And so it's important to get their feel for the overall cycle of things. And a lot of that comes down to opinion and their judgment. And in a lot of cases, those people need to have some experience and go through the game a dozen times. And that takes a lot of patience on their part. And, you know, so, because some people say, I want to play test, 
but they never quite get the game onto the table or they never play it a second time. Right. And so it is a very selective group of people who become very qualified, very valuable play testers for us. And like one of those that comes to mind, there's several. Uh, there's Benjamin Chi and David Macon, both of which live in Australia, and they discovered our games, you know, way over there. Um, so I was very happy for them. Um, there's a new person, Brett Grimmond, who's also working with us. And they have, you know, they came on initially as Warfighter fans, and then they eventually started, you know, suggesting rule ideas and whatever. And said, hey, you know, you're all full of ideas. We're doing expansion packs. How would you like to design something? And they all worked out great. Nice. And it's one of those things of it's just, you know, it's like anything else. Some people are well suited for it. Some people aren't. And a lot of it comes down to your motivation of are they willing to keep playing and keep doing it even past the point of it being fun? Because I don't know, like what you found with your designs, but for me, that first 20, 30 percent of the game design is fun. You're like throwing stuff together and it's fun. Things and the then wall, you, see what sticks, you know. Yeah. And it's like, I know we'll have airplanes. And yeah. and then you get to a point where it's like the rules aren't quite working. Rules are in conflict. There's holes in the rules. And then it actually becomes like the work part. Absolutely. And I think in terms of like people who want to be game designers, that's I think the critical point is I've met many people who have a dresser full of half-designed games because <laughs> yes. they get to that. Because, you know, the fun part's fun. Don't talk about and the then dresser they... of games over there. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess now it's like the hard drive of half-finished yeah, exactly. games. Yep, yep. And they, get to that... on there. <laughs> and they get to the work phase, and it's like, this isn't fun anymore. And so, like, one of the things that when I talk with people, I say, well, you have to decide, is game design a hobby or a business? Right. If it's a hobby, do whatever you want, design whatever you want, whenever you feel like it. If it's a business, you have to push through that not fun part. And one of the things that, at least for me, the last 10% of a game design takes as much time and effort as the first 90% of the game design. Okay. Right. And that's something I think that a lot of new people find frustrating, is they can see that their game is almost done, but they don't realize that by the time a game is almost done, they've only done half of the work. And then that kind of realization hits them. Right. And that's when I think a lot of people give up. And well, that's the difference of, you know, getting a done game or not. So if you had to kind of boil down the the mentorship piece of it, if, if you say, if you could say something to, you know, the budding game designers and, and people who think that at least they've got the the work ethic to see it through, the the vision to come up with something that will be both fun, challenging, um, what what are kind of those those i don't know what the word i want to use is the, the what are those laws of game design that are that are so immutable um these people really need to keep in front of their eyes all the way to the end of the of the project i would say starting on day 1 the game design has to be a project that you truly truly love there you know you want to do a solitaire hornet game or you want to do a warfighter game and this is a game that you would love to just go buy off the shelf at your game store if it was available, but it's not. And so you can't go buy it. So your only option is to design it yourself. And you have to love that project so much that when you get to the hard part, you do have enough love to keep going. And when you get to that 90% part, it still keeps you going. If it's a project where at the start you kind of like it, you're kind of iffy, you're just kind of doing out of boredom, you're going to hit that point where it's no fun anymore and then some other project is going to attract your attention. You know that meme that's on Facebook of like the two girls with the guy who's like looking at the other girl who passed? Yep. That would be yeah, my favorite bench over there, <laughs> written large. <laughs> yeah, that's what game design, you know, there's always that new flashy game design. Yep. And no matter what it is and how many games I've designed, Whenever I think of a new game design, the first thoughts through my head is, it's going to be so easy. It'll come you know, together in a month. This will be no problem at all. And that's where Holly, Kevin, and Sarah say, you know, Dan, we've heard this. It will be nothing at all done in a month's speech from you a dozen times in the past. It's never <laughs> been the case. It's always a four-month design. Awesome. And the first couple times said, no, 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 you're all wrong. This one's special. 
And since then, I've come to trust them of, okay, fine. You know, I still don't believe them deep down, but it's like, okay, fine. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt this time. And they're always right. It's always a six-month grueling design bleeding out of the eyes. My goodness, I'm glad we're finally done with it project, right. no matter how easy it seemed at the start. And I think that that might be one of those laws that you were talking about is know that game design is fun, but also know that you're going to go through a very hard, sucky period of this is hard work and you get to work on it whether you feel like it or not. And that's the difference between having a done game and a pile of half done games. Absolutely. So so if we can move just a little bit from thinking about game design as, as a process to really thinking about the business side. Um, I know Kickstarter has obviously changed so much uh, because as we've talked about, there, there's so much money that's needed up front to do these things because artists want to be paid, printers want to be paid. Uh, Brett and Chris and I all laughed just even making the, the Italian uh, air craft cards for uh, blood red skies it's funny how much money you spend just making a pack of 20 cards yep uh, right just 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 for play testing i mean these aren't even cards to be sold these are just to hand out to play testers and to vips um so so there's always a money side to it what um what are some of the the big constraints that that you guys have to deal with that kickstarter still doesn't take away they get that's why you find a retired money. pilot with flight pay yeah, I don't know any of those guys. I'm starting to see where the budget for Lead Pursuit is coming from. Well, I, I would say that, except for the guy that funded our Malta map, who I'm still indebted to, Brett Cantor. Oh, uh, for, God. For funding that experiment. <laughs> however many hundreds of dollars went down You've that. You've got a period. second mortgage on keep, the house. Keep, keep your voice down. Sean might be able to hear you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to say that too loud. Um, but but what are some of those things that are still big hurdles, even when all of a sudden you've, you've got the money up front? What are the big business decisions, big things you have to really wade through? A lot of it is scheduling and budget, you know, like you're saying, because everyone wants to be paid up front. You know, the game company gets paid last, unfortunately. And like one of the things that really, I think, has hurt a lot of companies with Kickstarter is if you don't do your research up ahead a time, the mailing costs are far and beyond what anyone would ever conceive. Um, especially, I think, people in Europe are surprised because I have a feeling that maybe the European governments do some kind of subsidizing of mail or companies or something over there. Um, because they talk about what it costs them to mail things around. You know, like they can mail something to the U.S. for $20. It costs us $60 to mail to them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you get a couple, you know, you get a thousand or so pledges on Kickstarter and you're then racking up $20 to $40 a piece just in shipping costs. And that comes as a very nasty surprise. And, you know, luckily our Kickstarter started small way back at the start of Kickstarter. But you also have things that go wrong like our very first game that we designed in-house, Field Commander Rommel. Little solitaire game, your World War II, you're commanding Rommel's forces. So I was trying to get the mailing costs as low as possible. So I found these padded manila envelopes. So I put a game in the envelope, took it down to the post office, and said, we're going to be mailing these across the country. We're mailing them to Europe. Is this going to work? Is the game going to get crushed? They said, no, no, it'll be fine. Go ahead and do that. So we <laughs> mail them out. And like a quarter of the boxes look like one of Rommel's tanks ran over the poor package. Exactly. At which point we were in, you know, we had no money. It was our first game. And so one of the things that we then had to do as a company is decide how are we going to go forward with this? And so what we decided to do was to basically lose all of the profit on the game by having a special run of boxes reprinted and then mailing those boxes out now in full cardboard boxes to all of the people who had damaged games. And it was a very hard decision because that was our profit <laughs> that just, you know. And, and to me, that's no small consideration because like Phantom Leader is not a light game. And right. to mail that through the U.S. mail system and for me to have that come through intact, um, I'll be honest, I, I'm quite surprised uh, with yeah. with the planning that has to go into that because I can't even get stuff shipped from Amazon, you know, that, is, that does shipping on a daily basis. Half the time my stuff looks like, like you said, one of Rommel's tanks ran over it. Um, right. So it's, it's I you know, 
I've only done a little bit of uh, mail order kind of stuff with different businesses and and worked in in that world a little bit. But that is, you're absolutely right. That's something that can't be underestimated because it's a very expensive world. Just even the products of cardboard boxes, packing materials, you know, things like that. Much less the the cost of actually shipping the things. Uh, the right. Things it's down. yeah, the little costs that people don't think about, like. If we get a thousand Kickstarter pledges, we then have to bring maybe half a dozen people into the warehouse, set up an assembly line of uncartoning the games, putting the games into the mailing boxes, which we get all of our mailing boxes from Uline. And we have to tape those boxes together. And just the pack out of a game can run us over a thousand dollars just in labor in the warehouse, tens of thousands of dollars in shipping costs, and that's if everything goes right. And yeah. it's, you just, you keep getting hit with these. One of the things that I found to be kind of amazing is if you get your games printed overseas, most companies print in China just because of the pricing. So when your container arrives for us in the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach, it can be flagged for one of three levels of customs. Level one is basically you're fine, move the container on through customs, no problem at all. Level two, is we're going to open up the shipping container like the kind you see on the diesel trucks on the freeways. And we're actually gonna open up a game or you know, a carton or two to make sure that it really is Hornet Leader in these boxes and you're not shipping in you know, heroin or something. And then level three is they open up not only the cartons, but also the individual game boxes, sort through the components, do X-raying, that kind of thing. And the cost difference, you know, if they do nothing at all, they charge you. If they do level two, they'll charge you like hundreds of dollars. If they do level three, they charge you thousands of dollars, which I talked with our shipping agent and said, so what can we do to like minimize? Because we've been hit with like some level threes and that was, you know, $5,000 at a time out of pocket and that was no fun. So I said, you know, are we doing something? Can we fill out a form? What's going on here? And they basically said, no, customs just arbitrarily decides what level of inspection to put on. And I said, but we've been bringing in games half a dozen times a year for years. And they said, yeah, it's just one of those things. And it's those kind of hidden expenses. You know, like before doing DVG, if we would get like a multi-hundred dollar car expense, like the radiator blows out or something, that was like a big deal. And now when you're running a game company, like out of the blue, people can say, oh, by the way, you owe me $10,000. Right. And it, it hurts. And <laughs> it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, you know, you and I were talking about it a couple of days ago. It's the same thing in aviation. And it's kind of funny that all of a sudden an extra half hour or God forbid, it's an hour of flight time. And there's a lot of zeros on the end of that check. And you're like, all I yeah. did was stand around inside an airplane for another 30 minutes. Uh, but yeah, it's, that's that's never the fun side of it. Um, and, and I'm sure that in the overall business model of DVG, I mean, you guys have obviously factored in certain games that you know are going to be a risk. And you go, we're going to take a risk on this. We're going to see it's something new. It's something different. Um, I'd say probably Fantasy Warfighter might be one of those. Who knows? Uh, yeah. You know, it's probably one of those things that you say, I think it'll do well, but my demographics aren't from that, that group of, of players, you know? Um, so how do you... I know that's a tough question to ask, but you know, how do you decide when to be risky? What kind of things do you look for in a game? If somebody walked up to you and slid a game across the table and said, Dan, I think you ought to take a chance on this one. What are the kind of things you look for there? Part of it is the game design itself. Part of it is the health of the company at the time, the financial health, is to say, okay, if we're going to do this game, it's going to take you know, so many thousand dollars worth of design time, tens of thousand dollars worth of printing and shipping. If this is an utter failure, will the company survive? And you don't really want to take risks on anything if it's the life of the company, because sometime you're going to fail that die roll. And one of the things I think that's interesting is how much running a game company is like playing a game in that you have resources, things like people's time and money, and you have constraints, which are deadlines, and you have capabilities, which are things like your product. And running a game company is a lot like playing a game in that you have a pile of resources, you have a pile of goals and concerns, and being able to mix and match those, you know, 
it's neat of having a lifetime of playing games kind of prepares you to be a business owner because you understand all of these, you know, the idea of I have resources and you get used to like dealing in turn cycles and you know that, well, this thing's going to take me three turns. Well, now it's going to take me three months at the printer. And it's very much the same mentality. And so when you're doing a risky game project, a lot of it's based on the scale of the project. Like one of our projects that did fail probably about six to 12 months ago was we did a Kickstarter for Valkyrie, which was a miniatures game, solo, one or more. I was hugely invested in it because I've always liked giant battle mechs stomping across the landscape, blowing (laughs) stuff up because I played Battletech way back in the 80s. And we launched the Kickstarter and we basically needed it to bring in, I think maybe two to three hundred thousand dollars to pay for the miniatures the molds all of that stuff because it's going to be very pricey and i think it topped out at like 40 to sixty thousand right and just there was no interest and also we had the problem of battletech also launched a kickstarter at that time and so we were going like head to head with battletech so we were going to lose that battle oh yeah well and there's some things (laughs) and and guess what Battletech still hasn't delivered. <laughs> and the press yeah. with Catalyst Clan games right now and Clan Invasion has been just nasty, nasty, nasty. I'm actually in one of the groups that is like probably th- they were like a thir- bunch of 30K gamers that were pushing Battletech like hard. And they okay. like got everybody to jump on board with the Kickstarter. And now everybody in the group is like going to them going, what the hell is going on with the Kickstarter? Aren't you guys like insiders? Don't you know what's... And they're like, dude, it's like, it's coronavirus. that We don't know yeah. where the containers are. <laughs> they're like defending a game company they're not even a part of. <laughs> yep. Right. Yep. And Valkyrie was a big hit to our company because we had a lot of money invested, a lot of design time. You know, Valkyrie basically was the design focus of our company for three or four months. Kickstarter launches and, you know, by most comparisons, a forty dollars to $60,000 Kickstarter is not a bad Kickstarter, but it wasn't nearly what we needed for Valkyrie to be. And so we pulled the plug on it. And in the last six months, we're reworking the Valkyrie models. I'm reworking the design, you know, of it and we'll relaunch it. But we're going to take all of the feedback that people gave us on the Kickstarter, what they liked and didn't like. And we're going to more fine tune that because it's like what Doug was saying. It's a whole new thing. We were taking a risk as the owner of the company. I made decisions and it turns out that they were wrong. Um, I thought that people wanted one thing. They wanted something else. They wanted more complexity. And so we're going to retool the design, take another shot at it. And I think that one of the skills that you need as a game designer company owner is not to fall in love with your own designs. You know, it's kind of in contrary to what I was saying before. You've got to love the design. You do. But there also becomes a point where you've got to say from a business point of view, no matter how much I love this game design, it is just not a practical business project right now and you've got to be able to you know take off your game designer hat put on your company owner hat and kind of give yourself the bad news of this isn't working out well does, and does you know starter help balance that versus social media because i'll be honest i think my opinion is a lot of times people fall in love with their game creation because kind of like their photography they get on social media and enough people like it or enough people in a small game design group go oh this is fun and right and it's tough to be the outsider who sits there and looks at it and goes, these rules are horrendous. I, I find no enjoyment in playing this game. I get exactly what you're trying to simulate, but, but no, I wouldn't pay five bucks for it, much less the $40 it's going to cost me. Um, right. You know, how, um, how do you balance your, your feedback inside a lot of these groups that I hate to call them this, but they, they kind of are self-licking ice cream cones as we used to refer to right. in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're groups of people who have very common interests. They already understand the game mechanics. They're willing to accept a level of complexity to try something new and something different. Um, but we know that's not the rest of the, the major crowd out there. That's probably going to buy your games off of a Kickstarter. Yeah. It's an important balancing act because your core people need to like the design But you also have to pay attention to those people who are new and pay attention to their feedback also. 
And sometimes new people will have very valid feedback because people who are longtime fans of the system kind of get into that same design mindset that the designers do. Of They don't realize that things have creeped too far into the complexity or that it's got off target. And it does take new eyes to be able to say, hey, we are not on target. This does not feel like a Hornet leader expansion. This feels more like a Thunderbolt leader expansion. So we have to scoot it back into the Hornet world. And it's a tricky balancing thing because games and expansions are kind of like movies and sequels in that a sequel needs to have a lot of tie-ins and feel like its core movie, but you can't just give people the same movie all over again. But on the other hand, the, the sequel can't be too different. And so it's a very fine balancing act of how do you do a follow-up? Right. And so like with the leader games, going from Hornet leader to zero leader or Corsair leader, it has to feel like a leader game, but it can't feel like the same game. And so there's that target area right in the middle there that you're shooting for. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on Thunderbolt Apache uh, delivering from whenever you guys uh, get through all the coronavirus changes and timelines and, and all that. Um, because I also think I'll probably get maybe a week with it before Brett says, send me that game. I want to try it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where Brett might like it is the expansions for Thunderbolt involve ground troops. Exactly. So you get... Yeah, he and I were all talking about that. His eyes all lit up. So I, I have a feeling I won't get very long with that game. It'll get shipped off. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to let us know and we'll be happy to send you some Warfighter stuff. You know, we can do modern. We can do World War Two. Dan you know. is just as much of a pusher as John. Is. So we, <laughs> this, is, this is not good. This is why we should not be doing a game. Podcast. <laughs> That's why you when you mentioned that meme, that was the guy looking at the other you know, girl who's walking. Right. That's how I felt when I took these two to Adepticon. It was like, hey, guys, let's go play 30K. Oh, and then God, there it goes it John Russell. Horrible. Yep, yep. <laughs> and Chris will tell the story. We were bad because we were like, well, which demo games do we play? Because we're going to get hooked. Do we go play Dust, which we've already looked at and bought models for? Do we, you know, go play these Warlord games? Or, hey, what about that cool, you know, uh, game over there? So, yeah, it was... Cons are bad, 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 bad. Oh, yeah. God. Actually, I think I saved about two grand because we didn't make it up to Con this year. I, 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 hate to say that. I mean, I, I am I am truly brokenhearted we didn't do Adepticon, but my wallet is not disappointed. Oh, no. <laughs> because I knew it was gonna be one of those expensive things. That there's gonna be cool things you want to try. And for me, and you know, Dan, you've you probably heard us talk that I'm kind of the acrylic addict. If there is some acrylic add-on and markers to a game that is a third party one, I'll go out there and buy it. And these guys laugh okay. at me. I'm running around to all the different acrylic manufacturers going, Hey, what templates do you have? What markers do you have? <laughs> I'm like, geez, Doug, don't you have enough of those wound markers already? I'm like, no, I don't have, I don't have little, you know, yellow imperial fists to put out there, you know. So <laughs> Doug's got a marker for everything. <laughs> oh, I, no, I have like six markers for everything. So I, I, I have a problem, and it's called acrylic. So, <laughs> well, so we've uh, we've been running for quite a while. Let's let's uh, tie this back up and and let's talk one last thing. Um, so the kind of the future of what you are doing uh, with DVG and where you're leading things, obviously you've had some challenges. You're obviously, we've had to work through some coronavirus delivery challenges, yeah. um, figuring out where games are going to fall into that schedule. Um, we've, we talked last time about kind of what you saw in, in the coming months. If you had to pick something, you know, three years out, four years out, you know, where do you want DVG to be and what is, what is the the big thing that you want to see in the gaming industry, um, specifically whether it's things that have happened because of coronavirus and solo play or how cooperative play is changing? You know, what, what are the things, that, the, the long spears you're kind of throwing in the game? That's a great question. Um, what I'd like to do is continuing to develop our existing game franchises like Warfighter, like the Air Leader series, the Field Commander series, but also be open enough to launch new series. And one of the things that I found is that kind of the success of a game is determined day one of the campaign or the not the campaign of the game design itself. Because when you look at the design, you can kind of get a feel for what kind of market is this game going to appeal to? How big is that market? And when you design a game that has a very small market, it can be the best game ever but it simply isn't going to bring in a lot of money because it's a limited market. So what I'd like to do is get better at 
kind of conceptualizing games that from day one have a larger market. Like one of the things that really has taught me with Warfighter is Warfighter, we designed the core modern game probably like five years ago. And at the time, the Kickstarter did okay. And so we released three expansions, you know, in the Kickstarter, which was like huge for us at the time. And then we kind of forgot about it, went on to other games. And people really liked Warfighter. And so we then kept looping back to it, doing World War II, more modern and so on. And so for me personally, to get a better sense of when does a game have a bigger market than I think it does, and to be able to give it the support from day one. And so like when we relaunch Valkyrie, I'm hoping that Valkyrie is one of those games that really expands DVG's market sphere. We have some science fiction games coming up. And so for me, it's the balance of promoting the existing franchises while bringing in new franchises, all the while really trying to listen to what people are saying online of what they want in a game. Do they want more complexity, less complexity? People really seem to like our one plus player format. So that way they can play solitaire or they can bring in their friends. There's also new platforms now like Vassal and Tabletop Simulator where you can play with people remotely. And that's done really well for us. And so also keeping an eye on all of those new technologies that can enhance people's gaming experience, especially, you know, with the magic of the internet and everything. The the lovely interwebs that have uh, bogged yep. us down in so many new games. I'll blame uh, blame that for me picking up the uh, the DLC pack for uh, for Warfighter. But but you hit on a good point. I mean, there's there's certain different entry price points and different entry mechanisms because we've seen people that uh, were tabletop sim gamers suddenly come to us and go, "Hey, we picked up this Blood Red Skies starter and it's really kind of cool. Tell us about the actual physical miniatures game." Uh, right. So I, I think there's there's some really interesting tie-ins there. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see, uh, as as Brett has really hit on talking a couple times, the cooperative format, and that so few traditional war games deal in a cooperative format. The only Correct. cooperative format is if you decide to have two versus two players instead of you know one versus one. Um, and rarely is it is it uh, cooperative. You against the AI. You against the the tables. You against the the construct of the game. So. Um, that's that's one of the things that I'll, I'll be curious to see where that goes in the industry and with DVG and, and the things that you guys are putting out. Well, Chris, Brett, any last minute questions from you guys uh, before we wrap this up? No, I was just just looking at Valkyrie online. It's got some some pretty amazing stuff on it. No, I, I actually yeah. didn't realize yeah, the Kickstarter really had failed, so I'm yeah, kind really of brokenhearted now because I was you get the Russian the Federation videos. in there. Got, <laughs> I mean, that's it's kind of a, a really interesting spin on the whole, you know that giant fighting robot kind of thing, you know, going down the, the you know, a post-apocalyptic world of that we actually live on instead of something somewhere else. So it, it just looks kind of interesting. I'm definitely going to give it more of a read later. That's the problem of uh, of doing your internet research was I had looked at all those video clips and I said, oh, I'll come back and come to those. That's obviously something new that's about to come out. Uh, yep. Well, yeah. oops, okay, bad internet research on my part. Yep. I should have paid attention to those. <laughs> Brett. I've been I've been writing notes furiously as we've been talking, as you've mentioned things that kind of spark my interest, but it's enough questions that maybe we need to save it for another episode. I think we might be able to go on for that. another hour. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've really enjoyed having you on, Dan. You know, thanks uh, from all of us on Lead Pursuit. It's been awesome to expand our horizons a little bit and and not just talk Blood Red Skies and kind of the game system that we've uh, we've devoted the last almost year to beating our head <laughs> against the wall and learning and figuring out. Um, because the at least you know for me the fun thing is picking up a whole new game, not being a Blood Red Skies devotee, and then all of a sudden, what was it? Probably three months into playing it, guys, that we said, ah, let's do a podcast. That seems like yeah. a great <laughs> idea, right? <laughs> no, no, I think no. we're on in the car ride coming back from Adepticon. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. <to> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how it was? Oh, I put it yes. out of my mind. Oh. I hate you all. What a horrible idea. Brett's Brett, Brett, like, this is this is cool. Let's do a podcast. Uh, 
<laughs> I think I said everybody has a podcast. Let's do a podcast. <laughs> How the podcast be? Oh, Dan, now oh, you see dude. with friends like these two, I don't need any enemies. Yep. Well, well, Dan, Dan, I just really re- real quick wanted to thank you. I mean, Doug sent it to me. I wasn't expecting it. I'll be very honest. I was so distracted with school that I didn't even listen to the last podcast until okay. two days ago. <laughs> so when Coursera Leader showed up in my freaking mailbox, it was a complete shock. And I like I was like, OK. This is something Doug did, but I was like, <laughs> but I, I, this is, this box is so damn big. I gotta open yeah. this is World War II. And there was something about, I haven't opened a game since like Boots and Saddles or Squad Leader when I was a kid and I open it up and there's like piles and piles of counters. And it's like, okay, so you can fly a Corsair. It's like, oh, I can fly a B-25 Mitchell too. Oh, I can do this. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> Yeah. It, just, it was like it was like it took me back in that moment, opening that box up, and I was just like, "This is yeah, this is definitely neat." Thank you, Doug. <laughs> you're, welcome. you're welcome. I know you'll repay it either in resin or something else. Oh so. yes, I will. Yep. <laughs> Although I have more unpainted resin sitting on my paint desk over there. No, the other dreadnoughts that still aren't done. Yeah. Um, Dan, thanks. Really appreciate it. Uh, we will definitely be talking to you some more and uh, look forward to seeing what you guys are doing in the next couple of months and hopefully chatting about some of those future projects. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and it is always great talking with you guys. <laughs>